Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Census map blows the lid on London's housing and transport inequalities. Michael Gove vows to revive traditional architecture with a new school of place. The true scale of social housing demolitions in the capital revealed. And an enormous new public space opens in what was once a major West End road. My name is Rachel Coppell and I work at Open City and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the London. guest this week here at Design District is Petra Marco. Petra is an architect and co-author of the new book, Meanwhile City. Welcome to the show. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for having me. Housing Secretary Michael Gove has backed a report which calls for the creation of a new architecture school, which would, quote, wholeheartedly revive traditional architecture. The report, which was dissected by Will Ng and the AJ this week, was published by right-wing think tank Policy Exchange last week and is authored by architect and critic Ike Ije. The report calls for the creation of a school of place to focus on placemaking and teach students how to deliver thriving, successful, and beautiful places. It says that, quote, traditional design principles and techniques should certainly form a significant part of the school's syllabus, and that the school should recover traditional architecture from the annals of obscurity to which contemporary architecture education has unfairly consigned it. The report adds that, quote, none of the institutional or professional bias that can be said to have been waged against classicism or traditionalism should be reflected in either its syllabus or curriculum, but adds that the school should not outwardly favor and focus on traditional design. The report goes on to justify an enforced return to traditional buildings, referencing what the author claims to be a, quote, hysterical response from the architecture community to the government's Building Beautiful, Building Better Commission, which critics at the time described as a tedious hangover from the 1980s. Well, I will say as soon as I hear somebody use the word hysterical, I immediately go, hmm. Petra, what do you make of this proposal for a new architecture school designed to revive traditional architecture? Putting it in context, I think there's been some 12 housing ministers over the last 12 years or so. And it's really difficult not to think of it as Michael Gove felt like, you know, I should have a report or a paper and uh, have an idea, a singular idea that will, with like a magic wand, solve the housing crisis or 
the issues around built environment. Uh, so I felt like having just skim read the report, I felt there's a lot of questions and not an awful lot of answers mm -hmm. in it. And British architecture is, is, is a big export item uh, and British architects are considered as some of the best architects in the world. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of really good architecture schools. Um, no one is saying that architecture education is perfect. It, it, architecture education has been going through a reform, I would say actually very much felt since the 2008 mm -hmm. um, financial crisis. I felt that at that point, really so many projects were stalled and so many architects suddenly had to reinvent the role of the architects. Mm -hmm. And this was a really good thing, I felt, because it was really opening up um, this conversation about, you know, the architect it isn't just the one designing, but actually needs to be entrepreneurial, needs to drive uh, the ideas, needs to understand development, needs to understand procurement. But at the end of the day, um, it seems to me that this school of place um, is saying that this school of place will result in a beautiful architecture and it doesn't really consider you don't even have to commission architects to do architecture and in the cases where architects are commissioned mm -hmm. generally the outcomes are much better so the ARB the architecture registration board mm -hmm. protects the title of an architect so that you can call yourself an architect only if you're a qualified architect mm -hmm. but it doesn't protect the practice of architecture so anyone can actually do architectural services make drawings and, and design buildings, developments, housing, etc. Oh, wow. Okay, so they can't call themselves an architect, but they could make you a blueprint and give it to you, and you could go ahead and build it. Yeah. And, I mean, for me, as somebody who's been working um, largely in the space of placemaking and urban design, sort of everything in between the buildings, I feel like um, the understanding of placemaking and urban design should be part of every architecture school. Uh, and, and the idea that there is this singular other school where a handful of people will study if that school even gets set up in the future. Because at the end of the report, there's a, there's a small chapter which talks about, you know, who should be setting up this school. And, and, and the government kind of really uh, washes its hands from the responsibility. It's just mm -hmm. saying like, oh, well, maybe somebody could set it up and then we'll support it. They don't really um, have a plan. So I think that this paper is not going to lead to anything anytime soon. And, and to be honest, um, saying that there was this hysterical response to the Building Better, Building Beautiful Commission, yes, to the setting up of the commission, but... Even AJ had reported uh, feedback to the Building Better, Building Beautiful Commission's report, which was called Living in Beauty, where actually a lot of architects found themselves agreeing with the principles and the issues that had been identified in that report. Uh, I mean, there was this contentious point about the idea of beauty, which is very subjective, yeah. and the idea that if you are trying to say that beauty is only one way of doing things, and, and it is referencing, always referencing history that kind of uh, prevents um, new pioneering design solutions uh, to emerge. So, so this was largely the criticism, but then they were, they were they had, that report had living in beauty had covered quite a lot of ground, which was really useful ground about things like gentle density, which was talking about densifying places. Mm -hmm. uh, and the notion of gentle density was that it's not necessarily, you know, 50 story skyscrapers, mm -hmm. but the kind of idea of density like you have in cities like Paris, where it's actually really dense, but your perception of it is not that you are amongst skyscrapers. Yeah. Um, so I think that um, the school of place 
uh, idea and report is is kind of very weak follow-up to the Living in Beauty report, which was a call to action. Having taught at the London School of Architecture, which is actually mentioned in the report, I feel that at the London School of Architecture there's really a huge uh, push or culture around understanding not just designing buildings, but uh, the context and the public realm in between and uh, the idea of placemaking. So this is definitely on the agenda. It's not something that architects aren't aware of. It's the problems lie more in procurement of buildings and and in funding. The report argues that there is a disconnect between the architecture the public is given and the architecture the public wants. Citing polling by Policy Exchange, which found that 84% of the public picked a traditional architectural style as their preferred choice. Do they have a point? Should we be moving back to traditional architecture? Uh, Well, Rachel, I'm going to borrow sort of thoughts from Roger Sogolovich on this, because he's an architect developer who uh, has talked a lot about the idea of housing as a brand Mm -hmm. and the idea that the Victorian and Georgian houses are the most loved and actually very valuable in terms of uh, Mm -hmm. property values, coming back to that point. Uh, But what we have seen is that people kind of buy Victorian and Georgian house and then they completely gut it and they extend it at the back and and they try to preserve the the historic aspects and the front porch and and the windows and and, and all of that. But... um, Yes, they are very loved, but people don't feel like there's an alternative which is of equal quality that is being offered. But at the same time, they need to do a lot of work to upgrade uh, and adapt these homes Mm -hmm. to make them fit for purpose for 21st century living and to make this open plan, you know, idea of eating, living and so on. So so I think that it's not that people necessarily would pick um, the old or historical architecture of new architecture, but there is uh, the, the quality of new architecture, generally speaking, is perceived as substandard to yeah. the quality of Victorian and Georgian housing. But but then if you look at projects like Goldsmith Street, the uh, Sterling Prize winning uh, social housing project by mm-hmm. Michael Riches, you, you can imagine people having an affinity to that style of architecture, which is modern, but is really drawing on traditional aspects in terms of use of material but it's also a passive house standard which makes makes the homes really energy efficient and and I think that this is where new housing uh, really uh, should go and and is really helpful because mm. because you can't always make some of the old housing fit for purpose in his introduction to the report gob argues that what he refers to as general improvement in the standard of design, will make the general public less likely to oppose new developments. Is this really a practical solution to NIMBYism? Well, I think it's not design only. It's a lot about communication and stakeholder engagement and the form of stakeholder engagement, which uh, I think, um, you know, part of my my research for the Meanwhile City book had also looked at uh, projects like Ebury Edge by Jan Katain, mm-hmm. which is a Meanwhile project that um, had helped... Uh, Westminster Council to bring people on board with regeneration of a housing estate mm-hmm. where they were stuck for a number of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, the homes were not fit for purpose and had to be demolished and there's a whole new project that is happening and they just couldn't bring people on board with the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so in, instead of having a traditional consultation process where you kind of um, present options to people, it's actually co-creating a project with the 
community and through that process understanding the needs of that particular community and I think this this is a really nice um, example for me which I think um, is useful in, in terms of addressing nimbyism so yes great design but actually the form of communication and consultation process uh, needs to change because uh, for me I mean when I came to London 16 years ago uh, I felt like the UK was so ahead in terms of consultation because there was consultation there's a lot of consultation on everything yeah. but then there's also the consultation fatigue and yeah. then people being consulted over and over again on something and nothing yeah. actually has happened for years revelations over the 2021 census data have been kicking up a storm on twitter this week as people pour over striking visual insights into the nation's population by area occupation orientation travel and home ownership as of this week, the Office for National Statistics has released the latest batch of data covering housing, identity, and education, revealing startling statistics which highlight the scale and severity of the housing crisis in London and the stark inequalities which play out across the city. The data, which for the first time includes information on gender identity and sexual orientation, exposes huge overcrowding issues in the capital. The top 10 local authorities for over-occupancy in the UK are all within London, with more than a fifth of homes in Newham being overcrowded. This is despite there being an estimated 2.4 million spare bedrooms in London, as some Twitter pundits pointed out. Nationwide renting has also more than doubled since 2001, and this is particularly felt in the capital where more than half of households rent. In Tower Hamlets, 74% of households are social or private rented, and in Suffolk, nearly 40% of households are social rented alone. Meanwhile, in Kensington and Chelsea, a borough where a third of households own a second holiday home, 32.7% own their property outright or with a mortgage. Disparities in car ownership also reveal that there are only a handful of boroughs where more people commute by car or van than households that don't have a vehicle at all. These include Harrow, Bexley, and Hillingdon. So, Petra, what do you make of the ONS census data? Uh, well, Rachel, I think the truth is that the data, to me, doesn't really reveal something completely new. It kind of verifies or, or it gives evidence of an existing situation that many of us have been very much aware of. It just puts it black and white on paper, in this case, on a map. It's kind of similar to me like uh, when London started to track air pollution. Uh, suddenly, when you saw the air pollution maps and, and the zones that were actually exceeding the EU limits of what's acceptable legally, you could see that most of central London was beyond uh, the limit. And this had actually helped uh, the mayor of London to have this as an agenda uh, to improve air quality, to introduce the ultra-low emission zone, and then actually to lobby for that ultra-low emission zone to be expanded. My view is that uh, data is really useful to highlight existing things that we, we know notionally or subjectively. We're very much aware of the issues, but uh, it's really helpful for us uh, to have the evidence and to have the data and to have it visualized. And this, I think, could be really helpful in making the government... Uh, to think more radically about uh, ways of improving the situation. Great. Are there any stats in particular that caught your eye? So my borough is Southwark, and um, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, 40% is social rent. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm in Bermondsey, which historically has uh, a lot of estates, housing estates. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, it is not 
a surprise. Uh, it's it's very mixed, um, but uh, most of the country is blue, which indicates that there's outright home ownership. For me, as somebody um, coming from continental Europe, so mm -hmm. I come from Slovakia, which had been part of former Czechoslovakia, which had been part of the uh, communist bloc for, for, for many, many years, which is another story. But uh, the UK has the longest, probably the longest history of land ownership mm -hmm. um, and and the notion of ownership of property here, for me as, an, as a sort of continental European, was at the beginning when I came to London quite um, intangible because because I felt like people were really quite discussing it a lot. And it, 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 it's always, it's such a big topic. And, and also the language that people use. So they talk about property rather than home. And, and, and this to me kind of shows like, you know, what is the emotional attachment? Is it seen as a stepping stone on, on the property ladder journey where you are trying to secure mm -hmm. your pension, your children's education, uh, your wealth uh, and, and therefore well-being? Or are we trying to create homes for people to feel safe and comfortable in order to get on with their lives and to be productive and to do their jobs? We talked a bit about you live in Suffolk and the data in your borough specifically. Um, one area this census data draws to our attention is to transport. In London, Open City Director Finn Harper pointed out that on Twitter, in Tower Hamlets, 66% of households don't own a car. However, we've got 17% of land being used for roads and 7.5% is reserved for housing. At the same time, the data revealed 16% of households in the borough are overcrowded. That's a lot of math for my future degrees, Merlin. <laughs> Petra, what's going on here? Why does it seem that so much priority is given to cars and car ownership rather than active travel or housing, for example? Well, I think that's, that is a problem, but it's a problem which can be solved very quickly. So transformation of the road network uh, is something which which takes a long time and uh, takes a lot of coordination between between different uh, actors and different stakeholders. But there's always a lot of tension when it comes to uh, roads and cars. And I've done quite a bit of research about uh, the topic of kind of moving away from cars. And and one of the key uh, points that we we always came to was political leadership. And so if you look at um, London uh, and you look at um, modal share of cycling, across London it's just around 3%, which is very low. But in Hackney, with the uh, low traffic neighbourhoods, for example, it's 9%. And this has a lot to do with political leadership, mm -hmm. making those decisions around, around transformation of road infrastructure, mm -hmm. because uh, this is in the public domain and per se, you know, a single private development or a small project can intervene to that degree into the um, transport network. So the statistics in Tower Hamlets, I think, you know, in Tower Hamlets, we know that um, there's been really difficult ups and downs in terms of the uh, the political leadership. Uh, but there's been an interesting scheme coming out in Tower Hamlets, which is uh, releasing sites for self-builders and mm -hmm. small sites for self-builders and uh, custom build. Uh, I'm not I haven't followed up how, how well that's doing, but I think our hamlets are keen to provide sites, uh, publicly owned sites that uh, people can develop housing on themselves. Just sort of on your point about the, the LTNs, um, 
I kind of remember when those were happening and people started kicking off about it and talking to neighbors and having neighbors say again to sort of speaking about value of property, saying like, yeah, they're a good idea, but now the cars are going by my house and my property value has gone down. Well, I mean, recently I, I saw uh, some data again in articles about the impact of low traffic neighborhoods on the surrounding streets because people tend to think that naturally if you remove cars from one street, they will just pile up and double on, on streets mm-hmm. around it. And the truth is that they are not. Actually, it reduces the traffic in the surrounding streets as well. London has lost 23,000 social rented homes through demolition in the past 10 years, according to research carried out by the London Tenants Federation. The AJ summarized the report this week, which indicated that just 12,050 additional social rented homes were built in London over the same period, as almost double this number were demolished, worsening homelessness and overcrowding. According to the analysis, Ealing saw the highest number of demolitions, with close to 5,000 buildings knocked down over the past decade. There were more than 4,000 demolitions in Suffolk, almost 2,000 in Hackney, and over 1,000 in another four boroughs. The report states that while some homes are demolished on safety grounds, many are bulldozed as part of wider regeneration projects, such as housing estate replacement projects. The LTF said that avoiding the social housing demolitions over the past decade would have resulted in an additional 35,000 social rented homes available for households in need of this type of housing in the capital. According to the LTF, the demolitions, combined with the coalition government's introduction to affordable rent homes, which are let in a similar way to social housing but enable providers to charge up to 80% of market rents, significantly contributed to a major backlog of need for social rented homes in the capital. GLA data shows that this backlog increased threefold from 61,000 in 2013 to 163,000 in 2017, with data after 2017 not yet available. Pat Turnbull, a Hackney-based housing association tenant representative, called on London Mayor Sadiq Khan to ensure that proposals for social rented housing demolitions are rejected unless the homes are structurally unsound. She said, quote, a sensible strategy in response to the government policy changes of 2012 on affordable rent homes would have been to protect as many social rented homes as possible. Petra, it's no secret that there is a dire housing shortage in the UK and in London especially. In Ealing, which according to this report saw nearly 5,000 social rented homes demolished over the last 10 years, more than 10,000 households are on the waiting list for social housing. How are we in a situation where we're demolishing the types of housing we so desperately need? Uh, Well, Rachel, I think in the grand scheme of things of housing numbers across London and in the London population, it's not a huge number if those had been replaced and not just replaced with new homes, social rented homes, but uh, replaced with double the number or triple the number. Mm -hmm. Uh, The problem, I think, is that, um, again, the public sector doesn't have enough funding to deliver new homes. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of going back to the discussion about how the system is set out and the comparison with Vienna where the city is the biggest landowner in in the city, so to say, and uh, has the capacity through um, taxes, through through, through quite high rate of uh, personal income tax, to collect money in order to deliver that uh, housing. uh, That also then, because it's quite such a large proportion, 60% in Vienna, which is subsidized housing, that also influences the overall market. So even the private rents are much lower. I believe that some of the demolitions 
were you know buildings that were not fit for purpose and i believe that mm -hmm. those absolutely should and need to be demolished and have needing to improve energy efficiency of buildings in new builds this should be a priority because of climate emergency over the years many critics have accused the government and local authorities who have allowed social housing to be demolished and replaced by new developments of promoting gentrification or even the social cleansing of london does this latest report prove their accusations were right i mean there are good and bad examples across london i don't think that all you know, there are some really successful regeneration projects and mm -hmm. I for myself think that King's Cross is, a, is largely a positive, uh, hugely positive regeneration story. Um, but people have different opinions. Um, but I think that if you just rely on the private sector to, mm -hmm. to lead on all these projects and on private investment, then, mm -hmm. then it's really difficult to guard the, the public interest and... Uh, there are mechanisms, of course, in the planning process through the Section 106 and community infrastructure levy. But, yeah, I think the pressures in London, the global pressures, and I think post-Brexit, the global pressures of investment are even bigger. So I think that um, can be only counterbalanced with uh, really supporting and strengthening um, the position of uh, leadership of, of councils, local councils and local authorities. London's largest new public space for a decade opened last week with the completion of the £22 million three-year redevelopment of the Strand Aldwych. The Church of St. Mary Le Strand, which has spent most of its life as a roundabout in the middle of the road, now sits in a newly pedestrianized plaza which connects the area between Bush House, Somerset House, and the Strand Building. The project, led by Westminster City Council and designed by LDA Architects, incorporates seating, planting, open space, and currently a temporary exhibition called The Voice Line by the artist Nick Ryan. So this is the biggest new public space in central London, encompassing 7,000 meters squared, roughly the size of a football pitch. That's huge. What do you make of it? I think it's a brilliant project um, to see uh, that level of investment mm -hmm. by a local authority in partnership uh, with others into a major public space. And and for me, it's almost uh, a little bit like a beginning of a sort of, if you have South Bank, which had been incredibly successful as a pedestrian riverfront area, mm -hmm. on the north of the river, you can't really, you don't really have that opportunity. You have that big road and, and quite a narrow um, walkway. So the strand is actually, for me, in a way, could be the South Bank of, of north of the river and and I think uh, with, with Somerset House and uh, King's College being the, the two sort of major institutions and the process that they had um, engaged um, there was the process of using meanwhile projects mm -hmm. there was a skate park which had kick-started the kind of trialing or testing period of pedestrianizing so mm -hmm. you kind of start low cost and you just give over the street um, to people and there was redirecting and closing off the traffic so so uh i think it's great and i think it i'm hoping that it gives impulse because i'm forever waiting for oxford street to pedestrianize oh, which <laughs> oh, <so nice. laughs> which would I, I think be such a success story uh so petra you've recently published a book titled meanwhile city what are meanwhile spaces and does this new development class as one given that the transformation took two years to achieve uh, so Meanwhile City is a collaboration with Milk, um, design studio Milk, um, and Meanwhile projects or temporary interventions uh, 
through our research, we find that actually every temporary project tends to stay much longer than was anticipated. Mm -hmm. So a couple of years could be still a meanwhile project. You know, some meanwhile projects are 10 years or 15 years. I mean, if you look at Peckham levels, um, it's a seven-story uh, parking garage building, which uh, had been transformed into uh, co-working and into artist studios and so on. And I think the uh, the tenure there is 15 years. Um, so, you know, it was commissioned by the council. The building is uh, owned by the council. So you could have meanwhile use, which is within a building, you could have meanwhile uses within public spaces. And I mentioned Jan Katain's project Ebury Edge, which is a meanwhile uh, a series of uh, meanwhile spaces and public realm uh, mm -hmm. on a housing estate, which is used as, as part of like a communication process. So they are really they come in really different shapes and forms, and and they last for different duration of time. But I suppose you can call them meanwhile if it is always at the beginning stated that you know this this is a temporary project mm -hmm. which has a goal of X Y Z. You know some. Mm -hmm. Projects like uh, the Old Witch Scheme, where they used meanwhile uh, interventions and temporary closures of the street, was about testing the future use. Some meanwhile projects like the Skip Garden at King's Cross, for instance, had been about uh, engaging local community. It was like a community garden which had been uh, moving around different areas of the mm -hmm. development as it was being built out. Mm -hmm. And actually last summer um, it had been given a permanent space um, on on the King's Cross estate. So some meanwhile projects then turned into permanent. Why are meanwhile spaces so important to pay attention to? What we were trying to focus on um, in our research was to look at projects that uh, either have the power to change people's behavior mm -hmm. or they kind of uh, initiate uh, a physical transformation, a permanent physical transformation in the future. Mm -hmm. So it was important for us to look at specifically projects that had really uh, intentionally and thoughtfully used meanwhile use or intervention uh, to to achieve uh, change, which without it would be very difficult to um, achieve. Mm -hmm. So i.e. if you were let's say going back to the New York Times Square example, if you were saying, you know, we're going to invest millions and millions of dollars for this permanent transformation of the Times Square, and here are amazing designs by Snowhead, and look mm -hmm. at this. It would have been really difficult to push that through all the various political uh, decision-making processes mm -hmm. uh, without having had the temporary trial, which had 374 beach chairs and couple of bollards, I think, mm -hmm. and, and some paint, so really low cost. Mm -hmm. And then and then actually doing the, the data uh, measuring and seeing how many people had set around immediately. So there it was like a process where the meanwhile temporary trial was really uh, effective way of consulting about the future project and actually building a momentum. So that's Meanwhile City by Milk and Petra Marco, available to order at www.meanwhile.city. All right. And then uh, first up in culture, the Architecture Foundation is delivering a series of mini lectures at the Barbican Center as part of its Architecture on Stage program called 
Tree Talks. Tree Talks is a discussion led by architects, artists, foragers, historians, and activists around the cultural and environmental role of the tree in the city, addressing topics ranging from colonial ties to local making, from adventure play to productive decay. So that's 7 p.m. on Wednesday, 25th of January. Tickets available now on the AF website. Please go check it out. And last but not least, plugging my own event. Can you tell your casks from your kegs? Could you spot a tavern from a gin palace? Do you know where in London the 1910s British government experimented in pub nationalization? Can you name London's first Black-owned public house? On Thursday, 2nd of February, join Christina Montero and David Knight, editors of Public House, a cultural and social history of the London pub, in the community-owned Ivy House pub in Nunhead for the ultimate test of pub nerdery. Tickets are available now on the Open City website. Great. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks, Rachel. Really enjoyed it, and thanks for inviting me. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.